we're here at Fortune Kit headquarters with a pianist and a keyboard player, Robin Hatch, who I'm going to say is probably the best person at playing an instrument that we've had on this show. Well, that's very nice. I mean, is that fair? Who else is good at like, we've had a lot of good musicians on here, but it's not like they know how to play their instruments, right? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I do either. A lot of hacks. We've had a lot of hacks on this show. Yeah. I can barely tune the damn thing. Yeah. Yeah, Robin, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm just, I'm speechless. That's such a nice thing to say. Thank you. <laughs> or um, I'm, I can frame that in a negative way now, though, too, of uh, Robin agrees that she's better than Britt Daniel. Oh, he's been <laughs> on this show? <laughs> yeah. So now yeah. you think you're better than him? Well, he's probably got more, like, confidence than me. <laughs> he doesn't get as much of red light anxiety. Yeah, but I th- that's what I'm saying is I think you could probably play the instrument better than him, though. So, you know. Well, if he's on- listening. You think and- you're a better musician than Will Meneker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, probably. I mean, he, co- he co-wrote This American Country. He's, a, he's an American treasure now. I don't know. If he wants to do like a, a social media um, duel, I guess I'd take him up on that. the robin hatch will menneker beef starts here i want to see a piano off you know i feel like actually the most underrated e1 song that we did on the e1 album is the instrumental one where wolf parade you guys like you guys played at the end of it and branson played piano on the first half of it oh was that the uh, the the wendy's ad Post-rock yeah, Wendy's. exactly. Like, yeah. I think that's so funny, man. That one doesn't get enough credit, but having Branson just sit down at a p- piano and just hit shit, it's a <laughs> lot of fun. Yeah, that was great. Um, but yeah, I think... Did you ever hear the um, H. John Benjamin jazz album? Yes. Yeah, we realized we were basically <laughs> ripping that off when we did it, but we just took it into post-rock instead of jazz. What My is f- it? That was a great bit, what? but those guys were mad at him. What is the oh, H. John Benjamin jazz album? He hired a bunch of jazz guys uh, to back him up on piano for a jazz album, and he doesn't know how to play piano <laughs> at all, so he's just kind of like banging around on it while the other guys are playing. I guess the difference between what he did and what we did is that he at least tried to play at the right moments, where the way he described it was like, I know that a piano player would hit some notes at this part of the song so he was like trying to be in time but he's just hitting whatever you know he has good comedic timing which i guess works for jazz yeah Yeah, Yeah. there's some degree of crossover that's what i feel like i did for my piano record is uh because i wrote most of it when i was just really angry after a tour and like i recorded a voice memo while i was just smashing my hands on the piano (laughs) uh and then transcribed that like if you're good at piano you can get away with that yeah because like you like especially if you actually have like an understanding of what kind of like cluster chord shit you're hitting i feel like you kind of you can earn the right to do that (laughs) I i think if you're good at music in general like in a in um like if you do have some kind of academic or classical training and you can translate uh, any idea into into like that sort of formalist notation, then you can – it's actually like a secret weapon. You can get away with a lot like – and I'm saying this because I watched a documentary on John Zorn last nice. night. <laughs> and it's like young John Zorn. He's like in his – early to mid twenties and he's being interviewed by, I think it's the New York times like jazz or like music, you know, they're they're like high culture music critic. And he goes to his apartment and asks him what his biggest influence is. And he just starts talking about cartoons like, you know, like Bugs Bunny, like and Tex Avery shit. Yeah. And, and he's got like, a bicycle horn and like a duck call. And he's like, yeah, and I just basically listened to it. And you can kind of see the, the, the music critic, just his, the gears turning being like, okay, this is cool. This is good. Yes. Like <laughs> I can work with this. It was That's great. Awesome. That shit did rule though. Like all the Looney Tunes music is great. Yeah. Yeah. And he brings up this really good point that like the Looney Tunes music is, um, it's like music without direction. Like it doesn't really have a narrative to it uh, when you take it away from the images, which 
you know, you know that like if you divest it from the images, it's just a collection of psychotic, scary noises. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's why people don't like Zappa. Yeah. Because so if Zappa like had that. been a soundtrack to Looney Tunes, you think it would be a lot more popular? Yeah. <laughs> it has so many of those elements. It would be like, a lot funnier than his actual lyrics. <laughs> That's true. That's true. If it was just instrumental and you had Bugs Bunny. I think you would say the same thing about, like, Mr. Bungle, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, Mr. Bu- Mr. Bungle would be a lot more enjoyable if there were, you know, just some nice pictures, moving pictures to go along with it. Yeah, uh, like, Mr. Bungle and Zappa should have done Beyonce-style visual albums. <laughs> about blackness in America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beyonce should just choose to do that to a Zappa album. <laughs> That's uh, what the awesome. Bee Gees did with uh, Sgt. Pepper's. And everyone hated it. Oh, did they really? I didn't know that. Yeah, 1977, I think. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was like a, a movie version of that album. Oh, man. And it's and they so bad. It sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone hated it. Really? And they were at their peak, too, and it was like a beloved album, and everyone hated it. God, that's funny. But if Beyonce did it, maybe she could get away with it. Wow. I didn't know about this. <laughs> Yeah, I remember seeing part of it on TV once. I think it, and even though I, even though I loved that album, it was like impossible to watch. It's got like Olivia Newton-John on it or something too, and the cover, I, I, the cover is like burned in my brain from digging through thrift stores for good records and just having to go through like copy after copy of that record and like Loverboy. I feel like that record, that record and the Loverboy record ended up in more thrift stores than, than probably any other record. Maybe Rumors, too. Uh, but yeah, every thrift store has a copy of that album. You used to see Rumors in thrift stores? Yeah. I mean, it was the biggest selling album of all time. And I think when people switched over to CDs... Like, yeah, they, there was like this exodus from the, vinyl. Yeah, like the late 90s, early 2000s, you'd go into the thrift store and just find like, you know, the greatest hits of the 20th century. Anything that sold like tens of millions of copies, you'd, you'd be bound to find one. I feel like what Alex is getting at, though, is that like once vinyl really picked up again, it became impossible to find like Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or any of that shit. It just all got like snatched up again, you know? Yeah, totally. that gets picked over. Now it's Now you go in and it's like... Uh, country Christmas classics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. Yep. It's just the lamest shit from And not even the good died. shit, because I want uh, Dave Dudley's Trucker's Christmas, but I can't find that, you know? Totally. If you're into classical, though, you can find a lot of good stuff. The, the, oh, yeah, definitely. I've done that. No just one like knows about it. $2 yeah. fucking three LP releases, yeah. I got a fucking, uh, like, Deutsche Gramophone pressing of Contact by... Stockhausen at a at a Bible's for missions in Victoria, British Columbia, <laughs> which is which is pretty rad. That was like maybe my best score. But now I think when you go to the thrift store, like the the connoisseur's choice, like vinyl is a sucker's game, and the smart move is go straight to the CDs. Yeah. Because you're gonna find no, you gotta go for the Guitar Hero controllers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's true. There's, my best finds have been in CD sections of stores the last couple of years. I don't know. What are what are some good ones? Like I don't. You're not gonna think, but like I got that Tangerine Dream Phaedra CD last year, and then oh yeah, that's great. That's um, a great album. Like Ornette Coleman, the CD where I have it somewhere around here. Um, it's panned stereo. I don't know if this is that's the right way of explaining it but if you oh free jazz yeah like if you pan all the way left you only get half of the instruments right um yeah so like 60s style panning where it's just really aggressive yeah so that those two are probably my biggest those are good those are both great records so my friend nick buys a lot of used cds and his theory was that marie kondo doing like that show where like upper middle class like uh, Gen X people wanted to clear out all their belongings have really made the CD selection a lot better. Totally. Like he, he claims there was a direct moment when that came out, like when her show or whatever it was came out that like all this good shit started showing up at like the used CD section. 
Like you just roll in and find like an original CD pressing of uh, Royal Trek's Twin Infinitives or like a Bonnie Prince Billy record or something. <laughs> Those 80s CDs are almost as cool as vinyl now. They look so old. The ones with the, um, they didn't have the ability to put pictures on the labels yet. Yeah. And they had those giant plastic cases before they all switched to cardboard because it was cheaper. Yeah, it's sort of long box. like. Those are great. If you can find one of those, I found one for uh, Talk Talk, The Color of Spring. Nice. That's, that's a great one. I feel like it was on this show where I got chastised for not knowing anything about Talk Talk before Laughing Stock. It wouldn't have been for me. You made yourself a laughing stock. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Frankly. Yeah. I, maybe it was when Andrew was on or something, because I feel like Andrew's into like their more normal, like, synthy stuff. I, I only know the hits from cover bands, so I don't know. I, I tried to listen to a full album, and I couldn't... I didn't like it. Maybe it was just the wrong time. Every No Doubt single was actually a Talk Talk cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a Girl, that was a Talk yeah. Talk song. That was such a smart uh, move. Spider webs. Do those covers and then transition to pop? Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a masterstroke. She should have covered like After the Flood or something. <laughs> she dominated the charts there for a while in the early 2000s. She had one of those albums that has seven singles on it and they all blow up. Yeah, Hollaback yeah. Girl. She made another Talk Talk uh, song. Like Orientalist themed. So it hasn't aged well. Yeah, the hard and now Juku people girls. only bring it up uh, to get mad at yeah. her. Yeah, but <laughs> she she just <laughs> I found all these Japanese people. Look at them. Yeah, they're crazy. Isn't that kind of what Grimes does though, in a way? Yeah. Like, is it, isn't that, isn't that just a proto version of like uh, Grimes shit now? She's orientalizing Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, because he's South African. I'm gonna start yeah. accusing my Twitter <laughs> friends who. Post anime of Orientalism. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee there's someone on Twitter already unironically doing that. Actually, shit, that reminds me. Like during the John Zorn interview, because he's uh, hanging out a lot with uh, Yuki Mori, who's she's uh, the, the drummer for DNA. She's like an incredible drummer, like played in a bunch of great bands. And he, I think, through her, went to Japan and lived there for like six months and then came back and he's being interviewed and i i was i noticed there's like an anime poster up like an 80s anime poster up in his apartment and he's like the original weeb like he's just obsessed with japanese culture (laughs) (laughs) in a a really kind of uh in a way that doesn't translate well to today's climate if that makes sense the kind of guy who was like getting vhs tapes with like fan subtitles and shit fan subtitled like robotech or yeah exactly there we go wait when was he in japan would have been um like mid 80s so like 84 85 so before rivers cuomo (laughs) yeah the other yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, Rivers really took the mantle of that. It's good, though, that Pinkerton, I I re-listened the other day. He doesn't, he's shameless about his kind of greasiness, and it's good. Yeah, it's kind of the last time, that's like the last honest record he'd make, I feel like. Yeah, very quickly devolved to songs about being epic and pork and beans and whatever. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) He got horny on the TL. And you gotta oh, respect it. He deleted like while we've been doing this show, he deleted all his most hilariously fucked up tweets. Cause in, like, oh yeah, he literally got horny on the TL. Yeah, too, yeah. But. Like one of the earlier episodes of Fortune Kit was when me and Alex were reading his tweets that are like, "How do I make myself attractive to Latina girls and stuff?" <laughs> and uh, it's all gone now. He must have had a social media manager or something. I think he's autistic for real. I have no idea. He's probably on the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I know the other, um, was it Derek who told the story on this show before about a girl he knew got hit on by one of the other Weezer guys from their official account on Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) The guy was DMing her from the official account to like seem like a big deal. Very cool. Yeah, and you don't know which one it is. You're just taking a gamble. (laughs) It's like, oh, I hope it's not the bass player. (laughs) Yeah, fuck the bass player. The new bass player with the mohawk. Yeah, yeah. He's trash. (laughs) Scott Schreiner. (laughs) Nickelback used to do that, too. They would just get horny on the main account. 
That's so and uh, I used to retweet it when they would get horny to a, a replier. I think a lot of Gen X guys don't and know how to talk to women in general and don't know how to use the internet. Yeah. It's like a lethal combination, I think. So they think, yeah, they think, oh, I'll just message from the band account. God, yeah, it such has a, more it's followers. Like amazing dumb guy energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's going to be impressed by all the followers on here. Like, how does that conversation go? When when do you reveal which guy you are? Only, uh, only when you meet IRL. Only on the date. <laughs> it's a completely blind date, and you... You're talking for days and days, and you make sure not to reveal anything about your personal life or which instrument you play <laughs> yeah. or, or how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> so she can't guess. Like, I'm going to go play my instrument yeah. or vocals. In my uh, band Weezer. Uh, we got rehearsal now with my band Weezer, so I got to go, <laughs> but I'll talk to you later. I really hope that like three guys in the band are all using the official account to do that and they got to keep the DMs like straight, like who's talking to who. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or they're all just hopping in and out. Yeah. It's like, like the Molly Crew, but the old bit with where actual you, uh, sex. You're on two uh, dates at the same restaurant and you're kind of going back and forth. They're like doing that with DMs. Rivers Cuomo accidentally invited two boys to the prom. <laughs> um, I don't know. On the. To actually like. It's not like we have to stay on topic. I don't think there is a topic. What's really. the topic? But Music. I was gonna say, I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested to hear how, like, what each of our experiences with playing piano and keyboards, because I feel like we probably all have very different, like, experiences with it. Experiences with it. But, um, like, Robin, when did you learn to play, or how did you learn to play, or? Um, I started piano lessons when I was five. Because a teacher at my school noticed I had perfect pitch. And then um, I did classical until kind of the end of high school when I wasn't going to be a concert pianist. So I was like, oh, I hate piano. I, you know, I'm going to take English in school. And then um, after university, I started working at Second City playing piano under like comedy, like uh, beginner comedy classes. Uh and then Our Lady Peace, who I don't know if the Americans know who um, that band is, but they got my name through the guys in the Arkells, who are another Canadian band. Um, I was the only girl keyboard player they knew, so that's how I started playing with them. Wait, the, did Our Lady Peace need, like, specifically a girl keyboard player? Is that... Yeah, I think they were looking to, that's... like, diversify. Uh... <laughs> Nice. Well, they've got lady in their name. Yeah. They gotta have at least yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Occu Rain was oh, really our man piece. Rain was really into the Occupy movement at the time. So um uh, we had like a spoken word artist uh opening for the band on tour. Slam poetry? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um yeah. You know it's funny, uh when Nate was on a couple weeks ago, he was talking about uh, people with perfect pitch and just being like, like telling stories of people like that being pedantic about like hearing like a fluorescent light bulb humming and be like, this light bulb is in C. Yeah. I hate, I hate that. And <laughs> I, I hate, um, when people say they have it and I can tell if they do or don't. And like a lot of times it's just yeah, I think people being like, Oh, I have it. And you know, the majority of people who say that do not have it. <laughs> And then the converse. Yeah, of that I know is, what pitch that is, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> David Foster Wallace does that in Infinite Jest, yeah. which is like basically the only thing I can remember from Infinite Jest. But uh, besides the <laughs> besides the tennis game, uh, but uh, yeah, there's a line in it where he's like the the vacuum cleaner uh, was oh, was I remember that. howling in a mournful D minor. Yeah, and I remember yeah. reading that when I was in my like early 20s and being like or late teens and being like this is so fucking cool and now... <laughs> wait did it say d minor yeah, yeah. like it's a whole chord yeah. apparently yeah yeah so it's got three different pitches yeah, it's a polyphonic vacuum man i do remember that line because i like that book i mean it's been like 10 yeah. years since i read it but i like that book but i remember that line sticking out to me too as being like well that just shows that he doesn't know what he's talking about there <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've read it 20 times but i don't remember any of it because I've read too many other books. 
<laughs> so I, for, I forgot it all, but I've read it a lot it's of times. It's one of every, the only books I've read, so I, I remember. <laughs> Alex, every yeah, post I like it. Every post you read pushes one page of Infinite Jest out of your head. <laughs> it's on other people to stop posting. Yeah, forgetting the damn book. Alex, have you ever like formally learned keys or anything? Or do you just play MIDI keys? Or I feel like you have like an okay music theory knowledge, right? Or yeah, I, I, I think my music theory is pretty solid. I'm not like skilled at keyboard, but I know the, uh, I know the intervals. I know how to do it. I yeah, I just have a MIDI controller, so that's the only uh, thing I really do with it. And Dan, did you start like, like informally learning keys like when you started Handsome Furs, or did you play before that, or? Uh, I had a, I mean, when I was playing in punk bands in high school, I was like secret, I was a kind of secret synth pop nerd. So I would, I would listen to that kind of privately. And I had a, I had a keyboard that was just, it just kind of appeared in the house. I I think maybe my dad got it for my brother when he was really young, but I sort of appropriated it and it was a Yamaha I forget the make and model, but it was like it was a sampling keyboard that had a microphone attached to it with like a curly microphone cord, like a little, uh-huh. little plastic brick, and you could like sample up to I think fifteen seconds and then like mess with the sample, and it had like primitive kind of like limited FM synthesis, so I'd make drones on that, and then when I started Handsome Furs, I was writing everything on the Korg Electribe. And the way the notes are laid out on that, I don't know, Robin, if you've ever played one of those like early Korg groove boxes or. No, I am just starting to learn about drum machines. So. So this this thing was like, you know, it had a full drum section, and then it had I I think it's like uh, six different synth parts, and you could pick these different synth engines, and then the way you input notes was. I didn't realize you could plug a MIDI keyboard into it and input notes that way, but it has a row of 16 plastic uh, buttons that are all numbered and they're chromatic. So, and then you have to set the root note cause it's like one and a half octaves. Okay. So I just, I just basically learned how to play melodies and, and bass lines on that, but just by figuring out what shapes made the most sense for the song and, and uh yeah i just kind of remember the shape in my head and then hang out around the shape do you Uh, yeah that makes sense is that like synesthesia uh i think it's just i think it's just i had no idea how to play keyboards and this thing isn't really a keyboard so but to me that's like guitar player brain of on guitar you learn a shape and then you move it around you know yeah And, and now i can i can physically like i'm faster at playing keyboards i can make i can make chords i can but i don't know anything about i'm still just making shapes that go with the song i'll just listen to something and then kind of start making shapes and play around in there yeah no theory but but just yeah only the shapes my thing with keys is like i took piano lessons for maybe like a year and a half when i was like 25 so i'd already been playing guitar for like 10 years you know yeah and like it I was too lazy to keep playing like piano after that, but it made me way better at guitar to actually learn about harmony. But I would say that's the biggest thing I took away is like, I started thinking way different about harmony rather than playing like bar chords and power chords on guitar. Now I just constantly am coming up with weird voicings and shit and thinking about like how to, you know, just add like 11ths and 9ths and shit like that. Like, and just going way outside of key on things. Like it, it just made me a smarter musician in terms of, thinking even though i never got good at playing piano (laughs) it was still like worth it for me as a musician in general i guess yeah i went back to lessons when i was probably when i was 25 too and um my teacher was really weird and intense and like did the i guess it's the russian method of like never giving you positive feedback and like making you (laughs) like get real like almost cry every lesson and then you get better a lot faster, but it's really like detrimental to your self-esteem. Um, so I did get really good at playing quickly. Um, but for theory, the best part I took away was probably the octatonic scale or like diminished scales in jazz where it's like semitone tone scales that 
Radiohead's Just Riff is that scale. Um, and then it's in Debussy's, like Claire de Lune uses the octatonic scale. Oh, cool. Um, oh, it's just going up by a full step? Yeah, semitone, tone, semitone, or sorry. Oh, yeah. I know that one, because there's only like two of them total, Yeah, there's right? only three. Yeah. So oh, then if three? you're soloing, okay, yeah. you can always go like between them. Yeah. And yeah. if you hit a bad note, you can like fudge it with those scales. So I think those those scales were like the glue that make it easy to make a like impressive sounding solo without knowing anything else about theory. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, octatonic scales is very cool. Like uh I was, I would say that my piano teacher when I was like 25ish was the opposite of yours in the sense of he was very willing to accommodate whatever I wanted to do. And so speaking of Radiohead, I just brought in like Radiohead shit. Like, this is cool to me. Yeah. And then he would like, he would listen to like the sort of like harmonic content of it and be like, oh, you should check out like Eric Satie and stuff like that. And so it introduced me to like, you know, 19th and 20th century classical that he assumed I would like, you know? Yeah. You should check out Eric Clapton. <laughs> yeah. Arvo parts that main guy, right? The... Like, I think Johnny Greenwood rips off now, kind of. The, like, he does sparse piano stuff that sounds really, like, cinematic. Yeah, yeah. Arvo part is great. Mm -hmm. It's, like, incredible. And then, like, Kid A and Amnesiac era, Johnny Greenwood was just ripping off Messiaen in terms of, like, the Aunt Martineau and... Whoa, totally. That kind of shit. Um, Brad Meldow, this piano player, did a Zoom, like, lecture a couple months ago. And he talked about how Radiohead's good at like um, blurring the line between major and minor chords with the other chords around them. So then the like tonal center's different. But I don't know. That was cool. I, Radiohead's good at that. Little by little. Yeah, I actually lamely read a whole book about like uh, rhythm and harmony and each like element of Radiohead shit <laughs> just to be like oh I'm gonna steal all these ideas I've only heard creep oh yeah you were saying that recently right yeah you've, you've listened to creep a hundred thousand times and never listened to a different song of theirs yeah I just I mean what's the point oh come on sorry <laughs> I, have a, I have a bit I just, I just it's my top played song by a huge margin but I'm just I don't bother to check out their other shit I don't care one hit wonder I have a bit that I do with Wolf Raid, uh and sometimes operators where uh, if we're jamming, I'll just uh, I'll just start playing a major chord and then drop it to a minor chord and then <laughs> drop it down like a fifth and play a major chord and drop it to a minor chord and sing at the top of my range in a falsetto and uh, make up a, <laughs> make up a Radiohead song. It probably sounds awesome. <laughs> it does. It's, yeah. <laughs> it sounds a lot like Radiohead. It sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> you should put out an album of that. <laughs> yeah, totally. How did you, Robin, how did you transition out of, um, I mean, I don't know if you transitioned out of piano or, or were always playing synths, but like, did, was, was there like a move out of, out of like piano playing and like, uh, more acoustic based keyboard playing to synthesis and, and getting into that world? Um, so when I left rural Alberta advantage, like, almost three years ago. Um, yeah. I had been playing the, like the Moog Taurus and bass pedals with them, which I really liked. Um, and I just moved back to my parents and was kind of like, I want to buy just an, an awesome synth and spend all my money on it as sort of like a fuck you to them. So I, I got like the a release. Yeah. So I got the profit 12 then. Um, oh, nice. just cause it sounded so unlike, I don't know, anything they were doing. Um, and also because I wanted to start composing or for film. And I thought it was a good investment, although it hasn't really led to anything. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it was that. And then um, I was in like a legal dispute with that band for a while. So once that ended, um, I was like, I want to spend, I don't know, not I want to spend, but like, I want to put this towards making a synth album to see if I can get more into composing. Kind of the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I didn't know you were in a, you were in a legal dispute with Rural Alberta Advantage. That's uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's over now, which is good. <laughs> good. Is it about oil rights? Yeah, yeah. It's about a bunch. It's about of, wax yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. 
They wanted to renounce their Canadian citizenship and become Americans. And uh, um, did you did you get more into uh, you know like once you got the Prophet Twelve, where you did you start getting into sound design, like just kind of building stuff up from scratch? Yeah, I started um, trying to score public domain short films, and like it actually was last year that I started listening to Nine Inch Nails for like the first time and uh, getting a framework for why you would use an, a swung arpeggiator. Like, I, I didn't know why yeah. anyone would use that. Um, and now I kind of get 90s industrial music more. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, I, I wanted to learn how to do the, like, Hans Zimmer, like, blah sound. Yeah, yeah. I found, like, getting, I, I don't know, kind of, kind of like... I think the moments off tour where I could have applied myself to music theory or getting better at guitar, I applied myself to um, just really figuring out sound design on synthesizers. And that that's definitely like been the most rewarding, like non, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where it's supposed to lead to, you know, it's not like, it's are not you like talking about like, like oscillator one goes to the VCA, like that kind of sound design. Yeah, okay. yeah, like the like the real building blocks of like just the the, the sort of meat and potatoes of synthesis, and really okay. trying to under understand it and become like familiar with it. It has been like to, was totally annoying to me at first, but then became really rewarding. I kind of had a decent background in that for cover bands because for wedding bands you have to program. Like you get more wedding band gigs if you have the sounds that match the 80s um, tones and stuff. So I'm really good at dialing in like a Huey Lewis brass sound <laughs> into like a rolling. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great yeah. sound. Um, but yeah. the the oscillator stuff, like all the intricate synthesis stuff is all new to me still. That's a, that's an amazing way to learn synthesis is by, by like trying to get like the Huey Lewis tone or like, you know, Fleetwood Mac, uh, tango in the night tone. Yeah. Or like that, um, Duran Duran, uh, hungry, like the wolf arpeggiated stuff. I don't know. Oh yeah. Cause there's no other reason to sit and learn like how to arpeggiate a sequence that's so specific. But once you do it once, it's, like, easy. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever met Dave Navarro? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> I don't think we've had anyone say yes to that yet. You're never, it's never going to happen, man. <laughs> it's going to happen someday. We should get Perry Ferry on the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I know the Weezer guy that sends the DMs from the band account. <laughs> <laughs> We should get Dave Navarro on the show. Dave Navarro should join Weezer. Yeah, he should, man. Holy shit. What's he doing now? He's tattoos. He's not wearing a shirt uh, ever. It seems like you should get diminishing returns after a certain point on tattoos. Isn't he covered up by now? You just start getting He's a still second obsessed layer. With tattoos. After the you get a nice little base with that first layer, and then you can start doing some really good ones over it. You get another layer of skin. If you're rich enough, you can pay to have all of your tattoos like remove laser removed and then just start over again. Just like a human etch a sketch. <laughs> I feel like I missed the tattoo window where I didn't get one when I was like college age. So then I just never got one because I'm like, I'm not going to get one now that I'm like over 30, you know? I you should get an anchor. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get like the heart that says mom with the arrow through it and an anchor on the other arm. That's the move. I don't have any either. And it, it sucks when you want to get one and you ask your tattooed friends and they're like, doesn't matter what you get because they all have more than one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's only when you don't have tattoos that you care what the tattoo is going to be. Yeah. And then once you have like five of them, you're like, oh, I'll just fuck it. I'll just get something, you know, give me whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The first one I ever got, I, I agonized over, thought about, and then I got it and then you know, about a year later, I was getting the word science tattooed on my arm in old English to win a bet. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the Anthony Bourdain thing where he's just like doing an episode and they're like, hey, you want our friend to give you a tattoo? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah fuck it. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I have a Game of Thrones tattoo that I got by accident. Like you didn't know <laughs> it was Game of Thrones? 
No, uh, I was I was on tour with uh, Divine Fits and um, the keyboard player Alex Fischel, who plays uh, plays in Spoon now and is an incredible, just incredible musician. Uh, he and our front of house Alice Wilder and I wanted to get matching tattoos, and he brought these designs and he was like, "We should get this," and it was like this kind of heraldic like. It was like a wolf herald symbol, and I was like, this is perfect. This is great. And Alice and I didn't <laughs> ask him what it was. We thought that he drew it, and then uh, we were about to play on television. We had some time off, so we went and got tat- We all got tattooed. And then, <laughs> and then I found out it was uh, the House Stark tattoo from, or, or House, House Stark flag from Game of Thrones. <laughs> And now it's on my body that's a cool forever. One. Yeah, that that's makes a wolf, me imagine right? that. Um, <laughs> I could imagine a curb your enthusiasm episode where like Larry encourages someone to get like a fascist symbol on accident yeah. or something. Yeah, dude, just like an Azov battalion tattoo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, that looks good. Yeah, it looks cool. It's... That's what happened to Gorka. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a misunderstanding. Yeah, Gorka accidentally got like a full Iron Guard back piece, <laughs> just because he loves. I tripped, and all these Nazi medallions ended up on me. It's a briar patch of Nazi medallions. I've never seen a briar patch. What ha- whatever happened to those? I think you gotta go to. <laughs> I think you gotta go to England for those. It's like blackberry bushes, but they're thicker and uh, pointier and curlier. Googling it right now. I think they got rid of all of them because it was racist. <laughs> It was associated with Song of the South, so they had to chop them all down. Oh, do you? I was re-listening to that um, "So Fresh and So Clean" by Outkast today, and yeah, that's there's a super racist. I can't believe they got away with it. He says, uh, uh, uh. I remember Rosa Parks not being happy with them. Oh, like she like the her like estate sued them, and it like took a long time to resolve. I think. No, really, I didn't know any of that. It's crazy. Dude, I love Outcast in general, though. But. Yeah, me too. He says, you're so Anne Frank, let's hit the attic to hide out for two weeks. <laughs> that's the yeah, kind of thing that's just like... It make sense yeah, as it's a just punchline. Like completely nonsense and <laughs> untasteful, but it's not the kind of thing you can get like canceled for, but it's really stupid and shitty. <laughs> yeah, it's just stupid. 303 had uh, do the Helen Keller and talk with your hips. Oh, Which also doesn't make sense in terms of actual like early two thousands shit that's just racist and if it was reevaluated it would be looked down upon as like uh, Juicy J and Three Six Mafia had so many lines about getting high so they look like Jackie Chan or Asian people <laughs> like they that's had like seriously like very true. four <laughs> different songs at least like many songs where they make the exact same joke and it's like man shut the fuck up dude. <laughs> Outcast. Actually, I should probably go through an Outcast phase because it's been a while. But I think to me they're like the Beatles of rap, where every single album was like a completely different style. You know. You should check out Hey Ya. Yeah. <laughs> that really was like the turning point for them to me. Of like that song is actually really good. But that was like oh, of course it is when they started not making classic albums anymore. You know. Like well, that, that was that album so very bloated. close to the end too. Yeah. Yeah. I had to play Hey Ya at weddings a lot, and it's so embarrassing when it's, like, all <laughs> white people. <laughs> yeah. Um, during the shake it like a Polaroid picture part, like, having to smile. Oh, <laughs> God, <laughs> yeah. Are there any other, like, wedding songs that were just deeply shameful to play? Yeah, Uptown Funk is one. <laughs> um, Friend of the show. Do the kind of people who book... Like wedding cover bands, is there like a type of person who does that, or did you have to like deal with a lot of shitty people or anything? Yeah, like rich people book. Uh, yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah. So you're playing at a lot of nice venues, um, but yeah, I don't know. It it's fun for two years. It's not fun for like six summers. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there a lot of uh, audience band interaction? So, like, do you, do you have people um, basically just harangue, drunk people haranguing you about playing a song that you've already played? Or, um, 
or do you sometimes, have control? Sometimes, I mean, the crowds are playing too. They want to hear Dancing in the Dark and like that's in the set and like all the Tom Petty hits. So, uh, and the band leaders were former child actors. So they're really good at like, oh. yeah, like uh, vamping to a crowd, even if the crowd's like not responsive or 10 people, that kind of thing. Um, right. So the weddings weren't as bad as the corporate gigs. <laughs> In terms of annoying crowds, what kind of uh, what kind of corporate gigs did you play? Like beer rep, uh, birthdays, and Movember was always big. Like a bunch of Movember things. Right. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I've played, I played like a handful of corporate gigs, and they've always been, for the most part, like just pretty pretty weird and unpleasant like i played uh tiff uh for oh yeah the the staff of some production company i can't remember what it was or they were like a conglomerate group that had a film division and it was like operators and tribe called red and and (laughs) i just remember being backstage with those guys and kind of thinking we were talking and just being like what the fuck are we doing here like and then we were like, oh, we're getting paid, obviously. Like, we're paying the rent. But, like, but yeah, just playing for people who are not specifically there to see you is hard for me. And I realize maybe that's, like, coming from a place of privilege, but it sucks. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like being the background music. It's hard. We played it... Um like the day before he left for Universal, we played at the head of arts and crafts wedding. Um, oh, uh, oh. Je- the fucking Jeffrey Remedios. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredible, incredible figure in the Canadian music scene. <laughs> Not only was the head of arts and crafts, but also on the board of Factor, the grant, oh, yeah. the grant funding thing. Uh, like, oh, wow. like just basically like the biggest fucking oh, con- conflict of interest you could possibly yeah, imagine. Insane, dude. And then because Wolfbread was on Universal, then moved to Universal and was there were I remember there being a couple of days when the music industry was like, uh, are you going to like step down from Factor or are you just going to go and like work at Canada's biggest record label and be on the grant board as well. Man. And you <laughs> fucking weirdo. Uh, I think he eventually stepped down, but like it, th- that to me just illustrated like the rot at the heart of the Canadian, like the sort of big CanCon uh, machine. You know? Yeah. I remember, um, I'd given everyone in the band Adderall like before the set and most of them right. had never taken it. And then we had, <laughs> um, it was open bar. So I was wasted and like, <laughs> there was a big fight over the tempo and never tear us apart. <laughs> um, and everyone was saying I was playing it too slow. So, but my defense was that they were all like on Adderall or, and that <laughs> I was playing at the right tempo. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it just, never matters but whenever like if feist and kevin drew are in the crowd it's like oh it feels like it's a bigger deal than it is but it's not like they're gonna like cherry pick you like you know i i see your talent let's go on the road together like yeah, yeah. exactly i don't know yeah that's that's probably the last thing on their mind at yeah that point. it's so weird it's so you you played remedios's like leaving uh leaving arts and crafts party no, it was his wedding. Basically. And oh. Then, oh, it was his wedding. Okay. Um, the next Monday, he announced he was going to Universal. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, so it was both <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah, like he was able to take like photos with all of arts and crafts in this like, remember these happy times way? I don't know. It's probably not right. that superficial, but I saw it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it might be. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Universal Canada was... Um, probably one of the worst record label experiences i've ever had outside of uh last gang which was terrible but uh universal canada definitely like i remember oh yeah yeah which is weird like because they were great for divine fits um we we put our record with universal and and they did a, a you know i have to say they did a great job for wolf parade they um 
somehow like couldn't get the records in any store that actually mattered. So we had to like requisition from them the list of places that they were sending physical copies to. And once I finally got a hold of them, it was like Renault Bray in Montreal, like a store that sells coffee table books and stationery. And <laughs> they had fucked up they had fucked up manufacturing in a way that uh to physically buy a copy of Wolf Braid's Cry, Cry, Cry that wasn't an import from Sub Pop, you would have to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 Canadian dollars. Jeez. Jeez. Yeah, just incredible, like, mismanagement and, like, bureaucratic hell. It's so funny. It, Canadian record executives, like, I don't... I learned that they're clueless when I joined Our Lady Peace, basically, that... They just have no idea. I don't know. I got my first Wolf Parade album in the States and hadn't heard of it in Canada yet. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right from sounds... what Dan said about Canada and yeah. Wolf Parade. Yeah. I think you have to, yeah, you have to, um, you have to sort of want to tap into that market uh, immediately and like work within that system. Um, yeah. But like, Robin, like, what did you what do you think the problem with Canadian record executives is like um, just, just having worked within, within the system. Like they want something that sounds like Arkell's that they can license for a sporting event and they have no concept right. of music. Like other than that, like uh, I listened to the fortune kit from last week of all the Moxie Fruvis stuff. Like, Okay. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no real like roots industry in Canada, even where like in the states they have Americana Fest and like so many kind of indie bands were like the closest Canadian examples, probably new pornographers. And even then, I think they're bigger in the states than in Canada. Um, they are, yeah. I think promoters think there's no market for stuff that's not July Talk or Kells. I don't know. Um, or they have, because of CanCon laws, like, Our Lady Peace can put out a new single and still make, like, I don't know, top five on the Canadian charts because of CanCon laws and because DJs have, haven't changed in 25 years and radio station staff hasn't changed. Right. So they yeah. just don't know. They're like, okay, yeah, we'll play this because Sony tells us to or whatever. It's funny to see that, like, the local uh, pop station here the main dj is like 70 years old like what do you know man <laughs> what do you know about post malone yeah i think i think there's a good argument to me i mean there's that classic uh sort of example of like cancon is you play i don't know you sell out two nights at uh the at the opera house in uh in Toronto and then you go pay, play for 50 Canadian expats at a bar in New York, you know, on your tour. Yeah. Like, like that's, that is a common story. But I, I, I think underpinning that all is this industry that somebody kind of likened it to like Brezhnev era or Gorbachev era, <laughs> like socialism in, in the Soviet Union. <laughs> like, totally. like you have this, well-meaning apparatus that's state-funded that is just by trying to compete in what they believe is like a free market has just reached this point of stagnation where everybody in charge has been in charge forever and will continue to be in charge forever and nothing ever changes so it's yeah it's odd yeah there's we don't have the college radio that the states has yeah that's true right like there's no time. I mean, CBC Radio 3, I guess. Yeah. And there's, uh, C, what is it, CJLO in Montreal? Like, there are, there are a few college stations trying to make a go of it, but unless you're getting rotation on CBC and, like, uh, FM radio, it's, it's like, you kind of don't exist. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious. Like, I'm trying to think off the top of my head where... I think, Dan, you were part of a wave of a lot of Canadian bands breaking through in the U.S. Like, mm -hmm. the 2000s had just, like, a huge amount of Canadian bands coming down here and doing well. But I'm not really sure how, like, the Spotify era has affected the amount of 
Canadian artists who break through in the U.S. and whether it's changed. Obviously, you can think of guys in the 2010s like Mac DeMarco or whatever who like have a following in the U.S. and shit. But I don't know whether whether like those kind of changes have impacted Canadians' ability positively or negatively to like come here. I I honestly just like have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think as long as as long as the sort of CanCon apparatus exists in Canada, it's you're going to have somebody like Mac DeMarco selling like a huge amount of tickets in LA and playing for a third as many people in Toronto, you know, like it's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's totally weird. And then you get this bizarre phenomenon of becoming successful internationally and then being sold. I mean, we've talked about this before, but like being sold back to your own country, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess Neil Young was the first person to do that, but Mac DeMarco yeah, that's definitely a good did. Point. <laughs> that's yeah. yeah, that's that's it, Robin. Yeah, totally. Neil Young, Leonard Leonard Cohen to a certain extent, I guess, mm-hmm. but he he was famous as a poet here first. He got famous in 1995 <laughs> when Jeff Buckley covered his song. <laughs> <laughs> he got famous in the early 2000s when a young visionary named uh, Zack Snyder um, <laughs> picked an obscure song to uh soundtrack a movie about comic book heroes that's not what you expect i feel like before we get out of here we gotta talk about the piano guys <laughs> while we're on the subject of of canadian i don't know i guess we're not on the subject of this at all anymore but what's the subject are these guys canadian no no they're american they're very american, they're very american. they performed at trump's inauguration <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think we I think we should uh I think we should all watch piano guys and then and then um I want everybody to guess how this band started and then uh I'll tell you the I'll tell you the real story. <laughs> yeah, I need all the background I can get cuz when you guys watched this on stream is when I was doing like the vocals for the the song with Will. So, I'm kind of like coming into this fresh also. Yeah, let's let's watch some piano guys. All right, let's get it going. Oh, there's the um, proverbial guy at the proverbial piano. Now they're two guys. Now they're three. Uh oh. They all look the same. One of them looks like Ben Shapiro. There's a ginger piano. It might guy. be Ben Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> I heard they're going to add a new piano guy. Do they make... It's like Menudo where they swap them out. Do they make money off this? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, if they did Trump's inauguration... They oh, right, if they did... Rolling. Yeah, he would never not pay someone that did something for him. <laughs> Touche. Not, Robin, not only do they make money, they, um, they frequently top the uh, U.S. classical charts. Fuck. This counts oh, as classical? That sucks. Yep. A One Direction cover can be classical? Yep. Well, maybe not this one specifically, but... That's how Jacob Collier got his Grammys, is from, like... You find a niche thing like this. (laughs) If you can lock down one of those categories, like, best reggae children's album, (laughs) you can win every year. (laughs) Just to put this in context, uh, these guys have sold uh, millions of records. Really? Yes. God. Their first record. Who's buying that? uh, Their first record is gold, certified RIAA gold in the United States. Like, how long have they been around? Since um, 2011. People are so stupid. Every (laughs) record they've ever put out since 2011 has hit number one on the U.S. New Age charts, and has been in the top ten of the U.S. classical. See, there we go. The new age chart. That's where you got to go to get to number one easily. Yeah. <laughs> na, na, na. Na, na. Oh, my God. <laughs> Imagine listening to this on CD. You don't even see the trickery they're doing where they move around and smile at each other like Mormon-like. <laughs> That was my vibe uh, I was getting too, is that it seems very like Christian in some way. Oh yeah. Okay. Whether it's like Mormon yeah, these are or guys who have never tasted coffee before. I was thinking oh. yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous vibes. Uh, okay, I want I want everybody to um, Alex, you already know the backstory, but I want uh, Charles Rabbit. I want. Uh, I, my I my want guess is Alcoholics to, Anonymous. 
Okay. Okay. All right. I want to go with the, some type of Christian church. Okay. All right. So the group originated as a social media strategy for Anderson's Piano Store, the Piano Guys in St. George, Utah. <laughs> oh, and Mormons then, up. right? They're Mormons. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. I was yeah. feeling Christian in general. Alex maybe gave it away with saying Mormons, but... Yeah, they're Mormons. Uh, you can tell they're Mormons by the way they smile. Yeah. yeah. By their empty eyes. Yeah, they're Mormons. They also played the Trump inauguration. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're incredibly popular in the Christian community, even the non-Mormon Christian no community. No wonder. See, that's why they're selling shit. Yeah, like... Oh, yeah. Like, the biggest Christian bands are selling shit. Because people like that still buy CDs, too. It's like, if Walmart is, like, the only remaining store in your town, then you probably still buy CDs, yeah. and that's what they're selling there, you know? Or, like, doctor's I, offices who have integrity to, like, send Nielsen reports. <laughs> of like yeah, totally. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but I think the Mormon thing is kind of burying the lead, which is that they they were literally, like, a social media uh, social media stunt. Uh, to sell more pianos from a small piano store in St. George, Utah, and then became the biggest selling classical music group in the United States. <laughs> That's like, imagine that why like would you ever have a store like that? Mormon as well. <laughs> oh, are they? Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. It's genius. Well, the music is, are, yeah. It kind of makes so sense. Smart, yeah. Yeah, it's bland enough to be Mormon. Yeah. You make me a believer. Yeah, you have to be Mormon to do something like imagining dragons. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us are just drinking. That's right. <laughs> drinking coffee and going to cussing. Going to work. I don't have to think about some stupid dragon to get an adrenaline rush. <laughs> <laughs> I want to believe that there must be some kind of um, tension between that small piano store owner and the piano guys. Like, you didn't cut me into the deal yeah. and I made you. Yeah. Well, he can cut off their piano supply. Yeah, at a moment's notice. He's got the warehouse. I'm embarrassed to say that I was like impressed at how the piano sounded, <laughs> and was like, oh, I wonder what mics they're using. <laughs> yeah, that's well, really, not embarrassing. I mean, they're using the best I'm mics. Sure, yeah, I'm sure they have like a good audio person. Bloomline pair, whatever. <laughs> yeah, all the live performances are pantomimed. It is probably all quantized and. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, because you can hear like the stereo panned vocals and stuff. Yeah, the best example of that is their. Um, is their Trump inauguration appearance where it's just, it's clearly just backing tracks and a bunch of guys kind of crowded around a piano pulling, pulling shapes <laughs> and, and making faces. <laughs> it's kind of perfect. I, they were like the perfect musical accompaniment for that event. I feel like. Yeah. Just staged phony, weird shit. Just phony taste. They get number one albums for new age. Yeah. That's so cool. The new age albums. Why is that still a category? I think Robin, if you take anything away from this episode, it's that you should become the Canadian no, piano guys. No, that's like Walk Off the Earth. Or <laughs> Do you have that band in the States? What I don't is, think so. What is like, Walk Off? They did that Gartier what? cover like when somebody that I used to know came out there was a oh. Ontario band that did like six people playing a guitar. Uh, I remember that. Oh man, I missed that mercifully. It's yeah, it's super cheesy and bad. Um, But they play like sports events, national anthems for like they played the NBA All Star Game last year, I think, or the Raptors Finals, I think it was. Jeez. So yeah, I'm not gonna do that. Oh man. I guess we got nothing for you then. <laughs> but I did, like, there's no classical artists, so with a hundred listens on my first day, I got, like, number two on the iTunes classical charts. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. So, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty niche market there. Okay, so you you already found your niche thing. Yeah, I just need to find, like... No, you need to th- find your commercial thing now, which is... I don't know if the, if those um, guys are covering Gautier with the guitar. I think you could just be the piano version still. That lane is still wide open. That's Wait true. a minute. This is you know what For, Fortune Kit needs to assemble everyone we know and make a classical album and kick piano guys off the number one slot. Totally. A new age album. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can we can submit it to both classical and new age categories but what the fuck constitutes a new age album like how do you 
even like instrumental instrumental yeah it's that's it. it has to be instrumental and it has to stink it's gonna be mellow and it's gonna have no vocals so like do make say think doesn't count because there's too many drums and shit like, yeah, yeah. it's not it's not boring enough to make it god god speed you black emperor ripping up <laughs> ripping up one. the new age charts yeah. <laughs> i'm in the other thing is i was i thought a graduation song no one's done that in a while Oh, that's, that's since vitamin C. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be a new. What one. would your um, graduation song be like? Do you know what the hook would be about, or something? Uh, it would be exactly like the vitamin C one. Graduation, all I ever wanted. Um, graduation, love to graduate. Well, it's got to have some things <laughs> that make it distinctly Canadian, like Reading Week or whatever. Like you, Reading Week was three months ago. Oh, it'd be yeah. about and May you're two gonna four. Graduate. Like it's our last May two May four. May two four. Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, <laughs> you you got to determine what grade you're graduating from. Like you could do an Ontario <laughs> version where you're graduating from grade thirteen, and then uh, a Sajap version. Yeah, Sajap version. <laughs> Graduation, say ball. All these regional <laughs> variants. Yeah. <here. laughs> No, this is yeah, a that, good, that's the best money making idea. idea we've heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, we should also. I think Fortune Kit should be like, um, what do you call it? You know, like in Canada, it's Dragon's Den, right? And here it's like Shark Tank, where we should have that for music ideas. Where like Robin is out here, like I think I want to make a graduation <laughs> song, and we're like, we're gonna we're gonna give you twenty thousand dollars to spend on studio time mixing. Yeah, yeah. Guest vocals. That's a great idea. Yeah, you come out and you give a graduation hat to every one of the judges. Oh, <laughs> and, you, and the ones for the women are pink. <laughs> uh, Danko Jones and backups. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like guest guitar by I Mother Earth. Premiere at the Elmo Combo, like live filmed, live streamed. Oh, we Elmo did an Combo. episode about that place. <laughs> So I played yeah. it at that guy's uh, Weckfest, his like annual summer festival twice because him and oh, Rain man. are very close. And it's like the greasiest insider trading party you can possibly imagine. And he's it's like thinly veiled as a um, charity event for underprivileged kids. So for like two hours, there's kids running around in like T-shirts and there's a bounce castle and then event women show up and like. Hmm. Weckerly's wasted in giving out like everyone in Our Lady Peace got a four hundred dollar bottle of wine, like just for no reason. Um, that guy's man, rich people fucking suck. Sucks. That guy's kid killed someone too, <laughs> right? I, I think or, he blew up a like car his, like yeah. two years ago. Yeah, allegedly. Um, also, wasn't he involved with the uh, allegedly involved with the Canadian Jeffrey Epstein as well? The uh, clothing, clo- yeah, yeah, clothing magnate. I don't. I believe it. Yeah, there's, I went to just... actually. I went to that guy's house too when I was oh, oh, when I was in Jesus. high school. <laughs> oh really? Because <laughs> I had friends from high school who lived in Bahamas. I went to boarding school, and so okay. we went to Nygaard's house. Um. Because it was, it looked like Jurassic Park, and when you're 17, it's like, oh, you want to go to an open bar party at this? Anyways, um, <laughs> it, it was fine, but we didn't stay late because I'm like party pooper. Well, I mean, probably lucky for you, yeah, yeah. probably for the better. Yeah. yeah, but there were like a lot of hot girls there who were my age. Ugh. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, there's something just so fucking depressing about the idea of a Canadian Epstein. Like, just shittier, you know, less, just the crimes are, you know, less Yeah, the tax evasion's more obvious. The tax evasion's more obvious, yeah. Uh, Yeah, he's he's like slightly less insane. Like, the people around him are more That's the worst possible Epstein, I think. Yeah, Canadian Epstein. Because a Mexican Epstein would be like an El Chapo guy. Yeah. And the be... European ones are like fancier. They're... This is like an arrogant worm song one. now where it's just like, oh, even the Canadian uh, pedophile billionaires are a little bit uh, inferior. Eh? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, allegedly I'm, I suspect Weckerly's fortune came from him being involved in like I don't, not Hells Angels, I don't even want to say it, but laundering like money from some kind of gang. 
um, right, into Bay right. Street in like the 80s. But that's, uh, I mean, I probably just made that up, so. Allegedly, yeah. 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 It's nice to come on here and tell uh, stories. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's uh, we're, it's almost time to wrap it up for this week. But next week, our guest is going to be uh, Weckerly, whatever his name is. So. <laughs> Weckerly Epstein. Uh, yeah. I hope he hears this. Oh, I wish. Give us money. Give us money. Give us syndication on the CBC. We've become or, almost entirely focused on Canadian content. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've had a lot of Canadian shit lately. Yeah, we have. At the very least, give us $400 wine bottles. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. Although in real money, that's like $300. So. There's video footage of uh, <laughs> him singing Personal Jesus. Sorry, I know you're wrapping this up. Let me find this, though. So it's 5440. Um at the Elma Combo. Is he shirtless? Yeah. Yep. He has a big stone statue on his arm. Oh, that's so lame. Oh my god, he's just like flailing around shirtless on stage. He was like hanging on the singer. So coked out and like... Yeah. Oh, now he's air guitaring. This, this is basically sucks. just every rich guy right here. Yeah. Yep. It's just powerful, rich boomer energy. Yep. Ooh, he's shooting like his finger guns at someone. Like, pew, pew, pew. yeah, he's the worst. Oh, and at his house, all of, uh, he meets women on Craigslist. So like all of his Craigslist <laughs> girlfriends were meeting that day. Um, and, like he invites them all to Weckfest and then they all find out that they're not the only ones. <laughs> oh man! And he that's does so this what like once a year? Every year. Yeah. <laughs> he owns I guess the if you're family. having a, uh, I guess if you're having a party, you know, you're gonna want to take the salty with the sweet. You know, yeah. can't enjoy a cool party without having some like uh, interpersonal drama. I feel like if he has Weck Fest every year, Dan, you should start having Beck Fest every year. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have. You should. You should start having breakfast. <sighs> I should start having breakfast. Breakfast would just be um, a, me spending a year trying to get. A, it's pronounced breakfast. Yeah, breakfast would be. Uh, <laughs> breakfast would be me spending a year trying to get a bunch of uh, uh, Yugoslavian post-punk bands to put aside their differences and get back together again. <laughs> The way that like Reading and Leeds is with the Smiths every year trying to get them to play a show. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, uh, Robin, thanks for being here. I think the next time we want to um, wallow in how shitty Canada is rather than the U.S., we're going to have to have you back to do that more. Please, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Thanks for having me on. No, I'm going to woo. Woo.